0: Well, good morning, everybody. Today we're continuing a series of talks on uh, marriage, and uh, we're doing this, uh, you may remember if, if you were here with us last week, we're, we're doing this because uh, whether or not uh, we're married, um, we need an understanding of marriage, because understanding of marriage will affect our understanding of family, and therefore our understanding of society. And we are all called uh, to live in the context of family, of one sort or another, and in the context of society. So we all need to understand. And today we are going to look in detail at what Paul writes to the husbands and wives in the church in Ephesus. I think that we will need to go carefully. On the one hand, the Bible clearly assumes masculine headship in a wide variety of places, especially in the Old Testament. And it is taught explicitly in the New Testament, in our text today. Chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body Of which he is the savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. As Christians, we uh, come to this text as the very word of God, reliable, trustworthy, and true, without error, able to teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and equip us, so that we may be ready for every good work. And yet, on the other hand, this is a difficult text. And one reason why it is so difficult is that there are real-life nightmares attached to it. Southern Baptist leaders in the U.S. advising women to remain in their marriages and to submit to their husbands, even though they are being beaten by their husbands. Church leaders in Queensland saying publicly that they are allowed to force their wives to have sex with them, with or without their consent, because the Bible says that wives must submit. This is the stuff of nightmares. And just so we're clear, such behavior, such teaching is to be utterly condemned, I'll come back to this issue later. So, what does masculine headship in marriage mean? What is this idea all about? Well, there are actually many good places to start, but actually, the place that I would like to start is the book of Esther, it's in the Old Testament. And our story starts in the court of King Xerxes, emperor over the vast Persian Empire in the 4th century BC. In chapter 1, King Xerxes throws an enormous party for all of his nobles, leaders and dignitaries. It's a banquet that would display his vast wealth and the opulence of his lifestyle. On the seventh day of this banquet, the king, drunk and in high spirits, sends for his wife, Queen Vashti, commanding her to come into the banqueting hall in order to display her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused. She refused the king's command. King Xerxes, distressed but utterly clueless as to how to go forward, he summons his advisers. In short the advisers instruct the king to banish forever Queen Vashti, to give her position to somebody else and to make a public example of her, sending an edict to every land and city in the empire that, to quote, every man should be the ruler of his own household. And so chapter 1 ends, and the stage is set for our heroine, the young Jewish girl Esther, who will become queen. But along the way, in only one chapter, our narrator has established for us that King Xerxes is a drunken and a glutton, a proud and boastful man who fully expects people to be impressed by his vast wealth and ostentatious lifestyle, a man who makes poor decisions and who is easily manipulated by flattery and appeal to base appetites, a man who objectifies and dehumanizes women. In other words, from the perspective of the context of the Old Testament, a total idiot, a class A fool. And this is helpful and instructive because it allows us to, cle- to see clearly what the Bible doesn't mean by masculine headship in marriage. It does not mean that every man should be the ruler of his own household. That's a pagan, Gentile, worldly misunderstanding. If, if we find ourselves believing this, if we find ourselves saying this, that every man should be the ruler of his own household, then we need to watch out because we're in the company. A second thing to do with respect to understanding Paul is to investigate his terms. Two key terms or ideas that keep on coming up in this passage are headship and submission. Let's think about headship first. It is very common, almost universally assumed, that headship means being the boss, telling people what to do, making the decisions. Headship equals making decisions. But the decision, biblically speaking, is quite wrong. And it is wrong because the job of the head, biblically speaking, is not to control the decision-making process. According to the Bible, in other words, to think theologically for a minute, according to the Bible, where are decisions made? That's right, in the heart. heart is the place where we this the seat of the will the place where we make decisions in the heart and where is the heart in the body the heart is in the body so where is the place where decisions are made where is the correct place to make decisions where does authority to make decisions reside where are decisions made <clears throat> in the body once we know this we can see that this is indeed the idea that both Jews and Christians have, that the idea that the authority to make decisions is not in the head, but rather in the body. Decisions are made in the body. The head represents the body. What does the head do? Well, the head contains the eyes, the ears, and the mouth. The job of the head, biblically and figuratively speaking, therefore, is... To represent. So then, in the New Testament, whether we're looking at Jews or Christians, whenever it comes time to make a decision, to settle a controversy, to find a way forward, the decision is always made in the context of a council, a meeting, or an assembly. The decision is announced by the head, but it is made in the body. For example, in Acts chapter 15, the first church council in Jerusalem, a decision was needed, and a decision was made. Verse 22, quote, by the apostles, the elders, together with the whole church. The announcement was made by James, the head of the church. In stark contrast, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, decided what to do with Jesus all by himself, and he ignored the advice of his wife to his eternal cost. So then, if you're a husband, don't ever say, I'm the head of this household, meaning I'm the one who gets to make the decisions. So then, if you are a wife, don't ever say to your husband, you're the head of the household, you make the decision. Because that's thinking like a pagan. Watch out, because if we ever say anything like that, we're in the company of fools. The correct arena for decision-making is the body, and the body is the whole family. We are the body of Christ, and his spirit is with us. So then, in what way... To quote Ferris Bueller's day off, in what way will the husband represent Jesus to his wife? Well, there may be, actually, there may be many, many ways in which the husband might represent Jesus to his family and his family to Jesus. However, I'm confident only to suggest one way because Paul mentions only one way in this text. Only one way mentioned here in which husbands represent Jesus to their wives. Only one way in which husbands represent headship in this text. And that way is this way, the way of self-sacrificial love. By caring for his wife, by lovingly providing for all of her needs as best he can, just as he seeks to satisfy his own needs. Only in this way, do husbands exercise headship, that is, represent Jesus to their wives. (laughs) Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Husbands are to take the lead in their families in representing Jesus in the sense of self-sacrificial love, putting the welfare of their wives and children before their own. somebody uh, might ask me, uh, Stephen, do you think that this headship role is intrinsic to the husband, inherent in masculinity, or do you think that what Paul is saying here is more to do with his own patriarchal culture? Can the wife sometimes be the head, perhaps in a matriarchal culture? Um, Patriarchy, by the way, patriarchy means that way in which Uh, families and societies are governed so that men are in charge and uh, the women are largely or totally excluded from decision-making processes. And if you reverse that, you get matriarchy. So what uh, what, uh, what, uh, what is the answer to these questions? Well, my answer is I don't know enough to confidently answer this question beyond doubt, but I will give a hesitant answer. In four points, firstly, that Paul's advice to husbands and wives is covered by an umbrella statement which says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, shows that actually everybody is to be in submission to everybody else. And we'll come back to this idea in a minute. And that therefore, in some ways, husbands are to expect to be in submission to their wives too. This suggests that, in this first instance, Paul is indeed addressing the norms and expectations of his own patriarchal culture, wherein the husbands are the ones who expect to be in control. Secondly, from the perspective of a Middle Eastern patriarchal culture, Paul's words here are radical and subversive and would have made the men of Ephesus, the husbands of Ephesus, extremely nervous because Paul's words are corrosive with respect to the presuppositions of patriarchy rather than respectful of it. In other words, Paul's words here are like acid poured on the foundations. They will surely, without doubt, slowly corrode patriarchy. And that is indeed exactly what happened, with the first cracks appearing in terms of the Western English-speaking world, the first cracks appearing about in the 1850s, and then the whole edifice of patriarchy in the English-Western-speaking world collapsing in the 1960s and 70s. And to be sure, in terms of an egalitarian society, we've still got work to be done, but patriarchy collapsed back then, um, in, in really in my own, lifest- in my own lifetime. Thirdly, so the words are corrosive to patriarchy. Thirdly, we need to ask ourselves if the Bible has an interest in establishing and regulating gender specific roles. Some say passionately yes. Others say passionately no. Speaking personally, I'm not at all convinced that the Bible demonstrates any clear interest in policing gender-specific roles, either in the world or in the home or in the church. But actually, you could argue that that's not really relevant because the body, the global body of Christ, hasn't made its mind up yet on this issue. So the correct answer is that actually nobody knows. Therefore, we should all sit loose to the idea that Paul in this context is advocating something that is universally transculturally applicable to all husbands and all wives. Fourthly, if the Bible isn't particularly interested in the question of policing gender specific roles, is there something that the Bible really is interested in as more important? that the Bible is passionate about? And actually the answer to that is a clear yes. What the Bible is loud, unequivocal, passionate about is this idea that those who are in any position of power must use their power as servants for the sake of others, not for the control of others. So then, in our day women might frequently find themselves, for any number of reasons, the most powerful person in a household. In that case, they will represent Jesus, who is Lord, and that therefore they must copy Jesus, using their power not to coerce and control, not to manipulate and dominate, not to threaten or abuse, but to serve the welfare of others as a servant." So this is the take-home message. Those who find themselves great must act as servants, and whoever is called leader must be slave to all. Yet and nevertheless, I think that as in Paul's day, so it is today in Australia, it is actually mostly men who are in the position of power in most families and households. Our Australian... Uh, domestic violence statistics, directly affirm this because the vast majority of offenders are men. So then, without question, primarily it is men, it is husbands who need to listen to what Paul is saying here. Because one of the things that Paul is saying here is that domestic violence and abuse are morally, spiritually, And universally unacceptable. They are utterly unacceptable. Zero tolerance. Because they misrepresent Jesus. That's not who Jesus is. That's not how he does things. And if any pastor ever told a wife that she had to stay, she's free to stay if she wants to, but... If any pastor ever told a wife that she had to stay and obey an abusive, coercive, controlling, manipulating or violent husband, that pastor would himself be committing an act of abuse, an act of spiritual abuse. This is the position of all of the mainline Christian denominations that I know of. And it does lead us rather directly into the question of what it means, then, for a wife to submit. What is submission? Well, it is very commonly, almost universally assumed, that submission and obedience are synonyms meaning the same thing. But submission is not the same thing as obedience. For a start, no one ever in the New Testament commands wives to obey their husbands. Submit, yes. Peter and Paul both teach wives to submit to their husbands, but they don't say obey. In contrast, Paul teaches children to obey their parents and slaves to obey their masters. And to obey is to do as you are told. Furthermore, the umbrella statement, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that sentence makes no sense at all if submission and obedience are synonyms. Because then we get, everyone must obey everyone all of the time, which is a nonsense idea. So what is submission? Well, the Greek verb uh, literally means to come under the appointment, Submission is recognition of God-given authority to represent. We obey Jesus because he is our Lord. We submit to Christ because he is our head. These two ideas are similar, but they are not the same, and that's important. We are to submit, then, to teachers and to all governing authorities, not meaning to obey them uncritically and without question, but rather to recognize that God has given them authority in various jurisdictions to represent him in various limited ways. And if you'd like to see godly submission in action, what does godly submission look like? Where can I see it? To, to whom can I go? What does it look like? Well, if you'd like to see godly submission in action, look at Moses's relationship with Pharaoh, or David's relationship with Saul, or Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, or how the multitude of Old Testament prophets dealt with their kings, or with Esther's relationship to Xerxes, or look at Sarah's relationship with Abraham. When you look closely, you may be surprised by what you see. So then, verse 21, once again, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Recognize God's authority in every member of the church, for every member of the church represents Hence, Christ in various jurisdictions in a limited way, but in differing ways. So then, take a quick glance at the person sitting next to you. Do you realize you're sitting next to, to, to Christ's representative? We are the body of Christ. His spirit is with us. Headship and submission in marriage. Let's take a practical example. It's time to plan our holidays. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Who gets to make the decision? Well, the family does. Each member of the family having a say in proportion to their ability to make meaningful decisions. What is the husband's role? The husband's role is to make that happen. To represent that decision. He would be extremely wise to put his own interests last, especially in relation to his wife's interests. For the more she sees him doing that, the more she sees her husband actually doing what she wants him to do and putting her own desires before his own, the more concerned she'll be that they also do what he wants to do. She'll trust him that he'll faithfully represent her in all of their dealings. So then, basically, in ordinary circumstances, in everyday life, there is an ocean of saving sanity in the simple phrase, happy wife, happy life. In verse 33, Paul summarizes. He says, Each of you husbands must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Please notice that in this summary statement, Paul does not ask wives to love their husbands, nor does he ask husbands to respect their wives. That's not to suggest, not for a fraction of a second, that's not to suggest that wives don't have to love their husbands or husbands don't have to respect their wives. Of course they do. But Paul knows which way temptation falls. So his final comment on this matter is both theologically and psychologically insightful. For husbands do indeed tend to give up rather easily on loving their wives and they look quite naturally for less demanding mistresses such as the shed or the dog or their work or the TV. And wives, actually, they do tend to give up rather easily on respecting their husbands and they come to the inevitable conclusion that their mothers were right and that they've married a loser. So Paul's injunction is astute, indeed, in many ways. And here is just one of many possible applications to it. And that is this. Look, without question... Everybody likes to be admired and desired, but men need to be admired, and women need to be desired. So then, men, we we like to be desired. You know, that would be nice, you know, to be like James Bond, you know. Uh, But you know what? I don't think we need that. Not in the way that women do. In fact, we can be told that we're dirty, revolting, and disgusting, and that we need a shower without that necessarily being devastating. Indeed, we are so perverse that to be found to be undesirable after, for example, a long day out on the fishing boat can be something that we take pride in as a, marks, mas- as a mark of our masculinity. Hey, yeah, I'm really gross. What a man. But, and we rarely admit this, but the truth is we need to be admired. We need to catch that fish, fix that tap, solve that problem, save the day. How many men does it take to change a a light globe? One, and the rest of the world to clap. Converse, to be admired. Incapable to be childish, to be incompetent, to be contemptible, to be foolish. These things are truly devastating for us. Our deepest fear is that the women in our lives will see what we really like and realize that we are childish, incapable, incompetent, foolish, and contemptible. Men like to be desired, but we need to be admired. Women, on the other hand, need to be desired. Sure, women, women like being admired, for sure. But somehow, you know, from a guy's perspective, it's amazing how they don't seem to necessarily need it. They can let others take the credit. They, they act like grown-ups. It's amazing. And indeed, many a pretty young woman has discovered the astonishing power of acting incompetent even when they're not. But conversely, women need to be desired. To be told that they're revolting or disgusting is devastating. Husbands and wives, they know the truth of what I'm saying, and you see this in particular when a marriage is in serious crisis, because that's when the big guns come out. The wife in one way or another tells her husband that he is contemptible. This is devastating for him. And the husband in one way or another communicates to his wife that she is undesirable. And that is devastating for her. And at this point, they are really trying to hurt each other and they're succeeding. But the truth of it is, is that every man, to one degree or another, actually is childish, incompetent, and contemptible. And every woman actually does have aspects to herself that are smelly and revolting and habits that are, in truth, disgusting. Therefore, to psychologize what Paul is saying here, husbands, desire your wives. Even though she may have disgusting aspects, overlook those bits and desire her anyway. For she is your wife. And wives, admire your husbands. Yes, we know that he can be a bit of a loser, but overlook those loser bits and admire him anyway, for he is your husband. When when husbands and wives do this, they, when they practice the impartial and forgetful love of God, the, the partially cited, I mean, love of God, when husbands and wives do this, it results in very, very powerful experiences of love, of being fully, of being loved and being able to love. It is an experience of being naked yet without shame, vulnerable without threat, of rejection you may have already noticed that in this passage of pauls even though he's attempting to write relationship advice to husbands and wives actually he can't help but spend more time talking about jesus and his church than husbands and wives and that's because the purpose of marriage is to show the world the love of christ For husbands and wives are to love each other in the same way that Jesus loves his church. We are the body of Christ. His spirit is with us. Are you a part of his church? The church that he gave himself up for, dying on the cross to take away the punishment we deserved. If so, if you are a follower of Jesus, do you, do you realize, do you not realize that Jesus sees you as holy and blameless? In other words, admirable, worthy of respect. Jesus admires you. Do you not realize... In Christ's eyes you are without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. In other words, you are desirable, attractive, the apple of his eye. Jesus desires you. Marriage is important because it shows the world what God is like. For this reason, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The Lord be with you.